Well, let's get this web conference underway. Tēnā koutou katoa. Greetings, everyone. Hi, mai, and welcome to the Marine Reserve's virtual field trip. I'm Andrew, the Learns Field Trip teacher, and with me is Ben Knight, who is a bit of an expert on all things marine. And um, so this is our second field trip web conference. And where are we at the moment, Ben? We're at the Kapiti Boating Club. Right. Down on um, Parapara Umu Beach. So um, Kapiti Island's just out out in front of us here this morning. I was going to show them that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a pretty cool <laughs> view. But I'll just introduce our other friends. Now I see down there we've got Witherley School in their uniform. And, and Cody Kiwi has got his uniform on as well. And so he really enjoyed uh, his day yesterday on Kapiti Island. Uh, my ambassador is Eddie, Eddie the Field. Speak up, Eddie. And Tito, the Tui. Lots of Tui and Kurimako, the bellbirds, on Kapiti yesterday. So I was just going to say, so here, here we are on the top level of the boating club. Kapiti boating club? Kapiti boating club. We're, actually, we're upstairs. So this is downstairs. I'll try not to drop the laptop so you can see. Some really neat pictures on the wall, some beautiful pencil sketches of fish. And so this is a view from the window. Kind of get the idea there. Lovely view of Kapiti. And you can see down on the beach, a bit of action down there. So that's that big tractor with the trailer that launches the ferry for the Kapiti um, nature tours that we went on yesterday. So they're obviously waiting for the ferry to come back. School group waiting to, to get out to Kapiti today by the look. Yeah, that's right. Some, some students down there going across to the island. I bet they're not snorkeling though. They should be, but probably not. So if you haven't, and you may not have because it's still quite early in the day, make sure you check out yesterday's videos from yesterday. Some really good messaging about marine reserves. We talked to Manaki from the, uh, from the um, Kapiti Nature Tours. Uh, so that's really cool. And we go snorkeling. And so you can get a bit of a snapshot um, as to what the marine life is like under the waves. It was a little bit murky yesterday. Um, we didn't see a lot, but it was still really neat and actually a lot warmer than I thought it was going to be, Ben. Hey, and one thing we saw which was pretty impressive was uh, quite a big snapper. Yes, which, um, I saw shallow, several. Yeah, several snapper um, in really shallow, only sort of waist or chest deep water. So that's pretty cool, pretty unique um, along our coast. There it to is. see them there. So Barry's just yep. putting up some of the images that I took yesterday. Um, so today we don't have a formal speaking class, which is fine. So you guys are going to run the web conference. Now, um, today we've got a bit of a citizen science focus. So in your chat box, right, the Zoom group chat, you'll see a little icon down the bottom that says chat. If you click on that, um, a little window comes up and that's where you can post your questions. So if you click on it, you'll see that Barry in the office has commented on the weather in Christchurch. Another beautiful day. 
I was going to comment on the weather here, actually. Um, it's quite cloudy and windy, but apparently it's going to clear up a little bit. Best place to be on a day like this is under the water. That's the wind right. doesn't blow so hard under there. <laughs> it's not too bad out there. Um, so so feel, feel free to ask any questions you want about marine reserves. Our focus, like I said today, is citizen science. So there's... There's a question that I was going to ask about citizen science. Maybe do you want to just give us a, an overview of what citizen science means? Sure. Yes, so citizen science is a little bit, means different things to different people, but really what it's about is everyday people, whether it be groups of um, students from a, a local school, uh, might be a community group, it might be a group involved in habitat restoration, planting. It's about them getting out there and actually um, measuring um, different aspects of the environment that they're interested in, essentially taking control of, of what's going on in their local environment, using scientific methodology to be able to better understand um, the current situation and if they're trying to make improvements to, to assess whether or not they are making improvements on the way. So for example, today we're going to do a marine meter squared survey with a group of students from the Kapiti Coast. And uh, Marine Meter Squared is about going into the, exploring the intertidal zone. The intertidal zone is the zone between the high and the low tide mark, basically down at your local beach. Um, you can explore a rocky shore. So if you're doing Marine Meter Squared on a rocky shore, you'll go in and uh, you'll lay down your, your one meter square or your quadrat as they call it. Mm. And, and you'll use a little uh, ID guide and you'll start to explore what lives in that, in that one meter square quadrat down on that rocky shore. Today we're going to do a soft or muddy shore. We're going to go down to the Waikanae Estuary, um, the, the Waikanae Estuary Scientific Reserve and the Kapiti Marine Reserve uh, connect and the space where we are, are going to be working today is where they join and we'll be looking at what life lives um, in, the, in the estuary in that intertidal zone. So we're probably going to find some shellfish which are really important food sources for the birds that, that make the estuary their home. We're going to find some snails, some sea snails um, and hopefully a bunch of other interesting stuff too. Um, and with Marine Meter Squared, you go out and you do your survey, you record your results, um, and then you load them up onto the Marine Meter Squared website so that then other people can check in and compare what is their local estuary's health like compared with, with our local estuary here, or what lives in the intertidal zone in their area, and how does that compare with other areas of the country? And then you can go back, and as you do repeat surveys over time, you'll start to see any changes that might be happening. So on the Kapiti Coast, we're really interested in... Um, a type of invasive seaweed which came over from Japan um, years ago and is on the south coast but has never made it up to Kapiti into the marine reserve here. It's called Andaria and so uh, we do uh, regular marine meter squared surveys down at Pukirua Bay which is a rocky shore um, so halfway between here and Porirua so it's on the way up as if you like in terms of where the seaweed might come through this invasive seaweed so if we spot it at Pukirua Bay in the rock pools there then we can be pretty sure that it's going to eventually make its way into into the Kapiti marine area as well so it's a way of monitoring the environment it's a way of um, getting a better picture of what's going on out there and as I say today we'll, we'll get to see marine meter squared uh, in action. So the so with um, but um, shellfish don't like sharing scientific knowledge. <laughs> That's they, right. So you got to dig them out. No, because they're shellfish. <laughs> they're very shellfish, those guys. Okay. No, bad jokes aside. Um, what I was going to ask was so this is essentially you know so if you're monitoring in a, a part of the coastline and yeah. you're doing actual scientific surveys, you can contribute that contribute data. Yes. Share that data. Yeah. Um, so where where does that data go, and does it 
actually help make a difference? Does it help really contribute to the bigger picture? Yeah, so, so with Marine Meter Squared, um, the University of Otago actually runs the database where you load your, your data, your observations up, um, and anybody else within the community, within government, can access that data. Um, and a great example of how that project's um, worked down in Dunedin, um, where it started, is um, school students started uh, doing Marine Meter Squared surveys of the intertidal zone um, along the rocky shore where the ferries uh, at, at, at the entrance to the Otago Harbour, to the Dunedin Harbour there, and what they were really interested in was the port company was doing dredging to make it possible for bigger boats to come into, mm. into the harbour in Dunedin, and the students were wondering what impact that might have on the rocky mm. shore. So they started counting the different types of life that they find on the rocky shore, and then over time, as the dredging activity goes on, they're able to, um, to see some changes, and what they have observed is some uh, marine animals, intertidal animals that normally uh, are found in a muddy uh, habitats so on a soft bottomed habitat are turning up in the in the um, rock pools um, because the rock pools are becoming uh, more sediment laden or full of mud from the dredging activity so that's really meaningful and important observation that these school groups have found. Um, iNaturalist is another platform where you can load up your observations um, and that can be terrestrial so it might be you've observed some interesting insects, uh, some plants, it can be out in the marine environment. We've set up an iNaturalist um, project for the Carpeti Marine area, so people, uh, when they see an interesting fish, or just a regular old common common occurrence fish like the rats you saw yesterday, you load that in, and then um, you create a permanent record of the types of animals that live within any particular habitat or ecosystem around the country, um, and that can be shared globally as well. Um, another citizen science project I'm just working on at the moment, which might be of interest to some of the schools that are that are tuning into this field trip, is called the Litter Project, and we're looking at um, beach litter all around New Zealand mm. um, and that's a big job to go and survey mm. sites all around New Zealand and there's no one agency that's really got the capability to do that so the project uh, with sustainable coastlines called the litter project we're working with community groups school groups all kinds of people who are interested in beach litter and that problem and they're carrying out scientific surveys uh, in their spare time as volunteers all around New Zealand monitoring 108 sites going back and doing Four, four surveys per year, and again, all that, that data is being loaded up into a nationwide publicly accessible database, so we can, again, establish some baselines around what the beach litter problem's like in New Zealand, and then we can start to measure changes in beach litter based on whether it be a, a weather event, you know, serious cyclone and heavy rain might wash litter onto the beaches, we'll catch, capture that data in our observations, but also if we start to have change in policy or education, behavioural change effort around littering behaviour, then hopefully over time we'll be able to measure the success of that of that um, littering, uh, anti-litter education, if you like, um, through seeing less litter on these beaches at these sites. So it's really important way for people to get involved in uh, the management of, um, of the natural ecosystem that we, we all exist in and we all need. It's also a really great way um, to, to help inform decision making. So really, really important role that communities are playing in that citizen science space. And I mean, it's all very well and good to go and do a beach cleanup. You know, that's great. But actually putting a different spin on it, you know, like a scientific focus, kind of creates a, a bit more of a meaningful activity. And when it's something that you can observe and measure over time, it just it, it yeah provides more of an insight um, to to the litter issue. Yeah, that's it. And so what we're establishing is baselines, which is you know what's the current situation like, and then we're able to measure change over time. And for sustainable coastlines, this is a really important step 
than our juniors and organization because we've done a large number of beach cleanups over the last 10 years. I think more than 600 beach cleanups removed uh, nearly one and a half million litres of trash or rubbish from our beaches. But what we've seen is that the problem isn't getting any better. And so now, now we're doing this very scientific method. We use a transect uh, and we're going to be able to gather evidence of the problem in a much more scientifically robust way, which means that uh, decision makers can start um, using that data to inform the decisions and the policy changes, like the plastic bag ban, which has just um, recently been announced coming into effect. We expect that over time we'll see less plastic bags on beaches as a result of that change in policy. So that's that's kind of the power of that, that large-scale data yeah. gatherings that can make uh, informed decision-making a lot easier to do. Yeah, so that's sort of what I was kind of getting at. You know, you can have a beach cleanup, which is fine, but how do you actually address that problem yeah. and how do you create change going forward? And it's about gathering reliable data, finding out you know, where this litter is coming from, um, what the litter is actually made up of. Yeah. You know, so that's part of your survey. You are talking to me about yesterday, Ben. You're actually itemising different, different parts of that yeah, litter. Yeah, we, we sort into categories of litter and then we count and weigh the items. So it is very robust. And we're using the same survey area and the same methodology at all of the survey sites. So we can not only compare each site over time, but we can compare different sites. So how does a, a beach in downtown Auckland City, like Mission Bay, for example, how does that compare to a beach on the Kapiti Coast where we're actually pretty low litter volumes on our beach, I'm, I'm happy to say. And then we can start to target the effort around um, the changes that need to happen to reduce the flow of litter onto the beach based on that evidence. So we can really fine tune the solutions, which is actually what we need. We know there's a problem, the litter project will help to quantify, gather the evidence of the problem at a very high level of detail, and then we can start coming up with solutions. And I'm hoping some of the uh, the students that are tuned in today might get involved in this and help us figure out some solutions to to that beach litter problem, to how we can stop stop that litter getting on the beaches in the first place. Well, hopefully they've got some questions because no one's asked any yet. But um, you know, so far away, if you've got anything you'd like to ask, and that's you know, you, you talked about you use the same methodology which is a really important part of science research. When you're, when you're measuring something, you need to use that same method. So it's not only just finding out more about the issue of litter, you're actually learning a skill of scientific research that can be applied to, to other projects, yeah. other areas, not just in the marine environment. Any question you've got about the natural environment, any problem that you see that you'd like to know more about, you can use these, these techniques, these methods to go out there and find out what's happening. Really cool project that happened in the Taranaki was uh, a group of students did beach cleanups and they were finding lots of shotgun warnings, which is uh, what comes out of the mm. shotgun shell when people mm. fire shotguns. Um, and they did a whole lot of research and investigation and they managed to track down uh, where the shotgun shells were coming from. It was a, a gun club having a shoot. Uh, the shotgun wads were going into a river, traveling down the river, out into the ocean, quite a long way north of where they were coming ashore. They worked with a, a company called Meat Ocean Solutions to uh, predict what the currents would do with, uh, with shotgun wads if they were coming out, floating on the, on, on the surface of the ocean, where they would likely come ashore. And so they used that combination of their observations in the field with the data they got from Meat Ocean Solutions, who told them about the currents. Um, and then they were able to take all of that evidence to, to the gun club. And uh, the gun club's in the process of getting uh, changing the type of wadding they use to a biodegradable one from a plastic one. So this is one example of how you right. can make real change um, and, and for, the, for the environment um, by using citizen science and by using the, the, 
the robust methods that, that citizen science involves. So it's pretty exciting when, um, when young people um, can get involved and can actually make meaningful change yeah. for the environment. Because, you know, that, that plastic, the impact of plastics, um, a marine reserve, you know, which is a topic of this field trip, doesn't provide protection from, from floating plastic litter. It, it comes in, uh, whether it be fishing line or a rope or a shotgun wadding or bottle tops, that stuff... Um, marine reserves don't provide any protection from that. So it's a problem that we actually all need to work on that a marine reserve on its own won't help. Um, and and you know, it has huge impacts on wildlife, whether it be seabirds eating that plastic, fish eating the plastic, uh, sea animals getting, or, or, or seabirds getting caught up in that, in that material. It has huge impacts. So um, the quicker we can fix this problem, the better it's going to be for all of the, um, the amazing animals that we uh, particularly love to get out and enjoy in the ocean. It was interesting, I know there's a question here which we'll get to, but I was interesting in that we were on Kapiti, which is a nature reserve, and you, what you take in, you have to bring back, yep. and there's also biosecurity, so uh, you have to make sure that you're not taking anything that's not allowed over there, but in terms of that litter, like we had our lunch and that, but we talk, took everything back. If... But in the marine reserve, you, it's th things can come from other areas. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's where the issue is. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go to the marine reserve and take all my stuff back. It's actually stuff coming from the outside. So there's, this, there's it's different. It's the marine environment, while well, it's really connected to, well, it is connected to the land because yep. that which has probably come from the land. Yeah. Um, but it's just there's a, there's a different sort of um, set of... Uh, I'm trying, what am I trying to say? The, in the ocean, all things are connected. And I mean, we've found litter out here around Kapiti that has had foreign uh, language on the containers, yeah, yeah, for yeah. example. So this stuff can travel huge distances across the open ocean. And so while we want to find local solutions, until we understand what are the dynamics that feed into that litter coming ashore on the Kapiti coast, we're not going to be able to come up with solutions. So it's really understand the problem and then design solutions to, to address that problem. Um, and one of the, the interesting things on the Kapiti coast here is we know that after a heavy rainfall, and we, we've now gathered the evidence of this with the litter project, um, that, that we do end up with a lot more litter on our beaches. And so then you start to think, well, where does that you know, where's that problem coming from? We start to look upstream, excuse the pun, and what we realise is actually a lot of the litter we're getting is bottle tops, cigarette butts, that kind of stuff, which is food wrappers, which is coming from the street. So somebody's accidentally or, or not thinking about it, whatever, they've dropped a piece of litter on the street, could be several kilometres inland or even further inland. Um, when it rains, uh, the stormwater drains carry all of that street litter down to the beach. So it's actually street litter coming onto the beach. So that's quite a different problem to what we saw at Kapiti yesterday, where we had a rope, which looked like it was from a, a fishing boat. Mm. So you've got different dynamics in different areas in terms of what that beach litter looks like. And this is where the citizen science can really create the opportunity to drill into the data, find the evidence of the problem, and then, and then um, find the solutions that are applicable to that problem. So... Don't get me started on cigarette butts. <laughs> um, now, I was just well, going easy to... easy way to fix that problem is don't smoke in the first place, right? I, yeah, but I know, but smokers seem to think it's okay. that It's like they're just universally allowed to just drop their butts on the ground and stamp on them. I, I don't understand that. But anyway, I was just going to say, in the Sustainable Seas field trip, not next week, but the week after, you're doing a bit of... You're having a look at ocean currents and how they're tracking plastic. Yeah. So that'll be, be, really, that'll be really interesting. interesting. 
Okay, so there's. I, a, I believe some of the, the rubbish from um, from over that side, from around Nelson area, yeah. actually comes ends up on the Carpenter oh. Coast. From what I've seen of that project, so again, that's where you start to to kind of really get the big picture mm. of the problem, and then you can start to get scale up your solutions. Yeah, yeah, it um, may not be your local um, rubbish; could be from somewhere else. So we've got a couple of good questions yeah. there. So if we see someone breaking the rules of a marine reserve, what should we do? Well, first of all, I guess make sure that you, that you actually know they're breaking. Yeah, that's an important one. Um, and that can be tricky sometimes. You're looking out to sea, you know, is there a boat in the marine reserve? First thing to be clear about is boats are allowed to be in the marine reserve. So it's not about a boat being in there, but what activity are they doing? But somebody fishing or taking things out of the marine reserve or dumping something in the marine reserve, if you know that that's what's going on, then there's a, a number you can call 0800 dock pot. Uh, and Barry can probably chuck up a link to, to that information on the DOC website. And the key thing is to keep yourself safe. So um, avoid confrontation with people, obviously, whether it be out with mum and dad or with, with the school group. Don't get involved in a confrontation. Keep yourself safe. If you can, take photos to document what's going on, if you can do so safely. Um, information about the type of vehicle they're in or the type of boat. Good descriptions of the people that you think are involved. Pass all that information on to the Department of Conservation through the 0800 dot hot number and let them deal with it, basically. Keep yourself safe, though. Right. Um, this is a really interesting question. So can we as kids make a real difference when commercial fishing has such an impact and also other countries aren't as careful with plastic as we are in New Zealand? So there's, there's two things here. You're looking at large-scale fishing operations depleting ocean resources. Yeah. And and litter, so it's a good question because mm. we, you know, we're quite strict on things. Even we're not perfect, but what difference can we make? Yeah, well, the the good news is we can actually make a difference, um, and there's lots of excellent examples. I mean, from the the shotgun wads that the school group in the Taranaki tracked down and have found a solution for, um, to 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 examples like the Carpenter Marine Reserve. You know, that started um, with the Department of Conservation and the local community here, including uh, members of the Carpenter Boating Club, identifying a, a problem and then working collaboratively towards solutions. Which in this case was establishing a marine reserve, and now on a global scale, we have something called the United Nations sustainable development goals which most countries around the world have signed up to and made a commitment to and included in those sustainable development goals are provisions or protections for the marine environment to better manage fishing uh, to create marine reserves and so one of the goals that the sustainable development goals have is to establish 10% of uh, every country that signed up to the to the commitment 10% of their, of their uh, marine area in, in a marine reserve, uh, so type one marine protected area, no fishing, no extractive activity is allowed. And so schools actually can get involved in that effort to establish local marine reserves. There was one up in Whangarei Harbour, which was established by a school group up there. Um, and if you jump on the Experiencing Marine Reserves website, they have a how-to toolkit, which goes through what is the process that you need to get involved in to establish a marine reserve in your area, which if you don't have a marine reserve in your area is a great project to get involved in. So we can actually make a difference and the key thing is get involved, get informed so that when you go out and have those conversations with the wider community, you're, you're bringing good evidence with you and there is good evidence of the benefits that marine reserves provide. Um, and then just trying to find that balance. So with commercial fishing, you know, most Kiwis like fish and chips on a Friday night and I think we're both the same, aren't we, Andrew? We'd like to have a meal of fish and chips Not from time to Friday. time. <laughs> and those power fritters that we had yesterday were pretty good too. So it's about finding that balance. And I think um, commercial fishing interests in New Zealand, um, some of the better managed fisheries in the world, 
but they do have a lot of work to do, and I think it's important that, um, that, that students get involved in that conversation and make sure that those companies and those the, the agencies responsible for managing our fisheries are actually um, aware of the, of the demands from the public, from consumers, because we're the ones that buy the fish, so we're driving the demand, that, that they understand that we want that to be done in a sustainable, long-term, sustainable way. And the Sustainable Seas National Science Challenge, you guys are going to be doing a field trip about in a couple of weeks' time. They're actually looking at how can we do management of marine spaces and fisheries on a much larger scale and how can we do it better. And I think 10% of our country, of our marine area and marine reserve would be a huge step forward, given how much we've seen in terms of benefit for the Carpenter Coast fisheries from having a marine reserve on our doorstep. Right, well, from citizen science to um, the biology of whales, <laughs> the question... How long do whales live for? Yeah, I guess it depends on the type of whale. There's yeah. lots of different types. Yeah, that's right. I think they're pretty long-lived, though. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm not a whale expert, so... I, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm thinking, you know, they, they live for around about um, a similar lifespan to humans, as, my, as I understand it. So they're pretty long-lived animals, um, slow-growing, you know, slow to breed. That's why they were wiped out uh, around Kapiti so slow quickly. Breeding. So the, the whaling industry here, you know, it, it only lasted for 30 years from, from boom to bust. There was, I think, five... Uh, whaling stations on Kapiti Island um, when it first started, um, and within 30 years it was completely over, over and you know, yeah, I no mean, longer economic to do it. It's um, unbelievable to think five whaling stations, yeah, just just, just here. out here, uh, and you know, it, was, it sounds like uh, for me, I'm a real whale lover. You know, I've always been um, passionate about about marine marine life, but whales particularly. Yeah. And I've been to Tonga and actually swam with humpback whales. Nice. Amazing experience, mm. um, but here we had uh, southern right whales would come in seasonally, um, and they would calf here, so they would they would give birth to their calves. And the the um, the, the population that would come in was somewhere around six or seven hundred whales, I believe. Um, each, each winter would come in here and breed. And now, like last winter, um, some of some of your students here might have actually heard about Matariki, the whale which came into Wellington Harbour. Mm. Pretty exciting, and we had thousands of people lining the harbour. The traffic stopped on the motorway because people wanted to see this whale. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, within 30 years of the whaling industry starting here, it was gone. So, you know, I think now, you know, what, what are we missing in this, um, in this, in this marine environment we've got here in Wales is definitely one of them. So I'm hoping that I'm going to live long enough to see those southern right whales back in here in, in significant numbers. We had a mother and calf on the coast this year. We had mother and calf in Wellington Harbour. We had Matariki uh, in, in the harbour for a couple of weeks. So it just shows that, that when you stop whaling, same with if you create marine reserves and you're patient uh, and everybody follows the rules, that over time you will get recovery yeah. and that recovery is really exciting to see. Yep, nature will <coughs> nature will sort itself out if you leave it alone. Here's another good one. Yep, so when did the Carpeti Marine Reserve open? Well, I assume they're talking about this one. Yeah. I reckon. Uh, so officially it opened in May 1992, which makes it 26 years old now. Um, that's the fourth oldest marine reserve in New Zealand. And for me, as a Kapiti Coaster, I'm really um, actually pretty stoked that we were one of the first communities in New Zealand to get behind uh, a marine reserve proposal and to support it and to make it happen. It's also one of the largest marine reserves. So, you know, it's pretty inspirational, I think, for other communities around the country, you know, that are, that are trying to, at the moment, work through all of the different... Um, dynamics that need to be to be um, sorted in order to have marine reserves in their area. So there's a big project been going on on the southeast coast 
uh, of South Island. Um, they've been trying to get the, sort of the, I think it's the Southeast Marine Protection Forum. They've been trying to establish marine reserves down there. And that process has been going on for quite some time. They haven't been able to achieve the outcomes that, that a lot of people are looking for. They haven't been able to get agreement. Same in the Haraki Gulf. They're looking to try and establish more marine reserves up there because that's a, another amazing yeah. place to go diving, go snorkeling, go boating, go fishing. Um, but it's under huge amounts of pressure. So we need marine reserves up there. Um, but getting that agreement can be tricky. And it was a tough conversation that had to go on on the Carpentry Coast. But I think it's a credit to our community to be to be role models and leaders like that and to have established uh, marine reserves so long ago. And as Manaki talked about yesterday, there was support from, from the local iwi. There was support from the fishing clubs. But that support took time and we needed evidence of the problem and also evidence that marine protection could provide a solution. And so once all of that information was on the table, uh, the local community jumped on board and supported it. And now we have 22 square kilometres of our local marine area in full notate marine protection which is yes awesome now it's amazing how much more fish there are in the marine reserve when i go for a dive compared to the outside so well speaking of fish so there's a question here what's the rarest <laughs> fish to find and you, you're possibly going to talk about a fish that you've only ever seen one of yeah we don't even know what it is um that's a, that's a good question what is the rarest fish to find um the rarest fish to find is one that hasn't been found previously and so yeah last summer we had a quite warm water it was nearly 23 degrees um, the water on the Carpenter Coast last summer. We get warm water coming straight across from Australia, basically across the Tasman Sea. Uh, and um, just in that spot we were snorkeling yesterday, we came across a little fish, looked a bit like a tarakihi, looked a little bit like a red muki, um, both of which are quite abundant out of that spot, but it wasn't either of those things. And so we shared it with a few marine scientists, uh, people who, who professionally uh, investigate these things. Um, there's a link to the story actually in Andrew's blog from yesterday and uh, his diary. Um, but, but long story short, this fish is a fish that no scientist has ever seen before has not been described in the scientific literature. Um, and so that's probably the rarest fish that I've found. Uh, and we still don't know what it is. So at the moment, we're calling it a, a taramoki or a, or a rarakee. <laughs> right. also, it's, it's also known as the mystery fish. The mystery fish, that's right. Um, a pretty cool story and really exciting to be part of that whole uh, very, at times, quite, quite um, intense scientific debate around what it might be. Some people thought it could be a hybrid. Others thought it could be a new species. Um, and new species means something that we haven't seen before. That doesn't mean it's only just appeared. Could just be living in relatively small numbers on a seamount way out in the middle of the Tasman Sea somewhere. So the cool thing with um, with that kind of observation or discovery is that anybody can make it. I'm just a, just a guy that likes to go diving and snorkeling. Um, and when we do our marine meter squared surveys, it's the same sort of excitement that I find because you never know what you're going to find. Um, it may be a species that's previously known uh, to science um, but hasn't been seen in that area of the country before or in some cases it's a species that's known to science but has never been seen in New Zealand before and that's the kind of discoveries that everyday uh, citizen scientists are making um, all around New Zealand. New species are being described, new species identified. It's pretty exciting. You can you can contribute to um, to the body of knowledge around, around what lives on our coastline. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to finding out more about that today. So um, we've kind of run out of time but thanks everybody for your involvement this morning those of you posted questions and thanks for joining us and listening ben is a fountain of knowledge um <laughs> we could we could talk with him all day about all things marine i'm sure and as you can see he's really passionate and you know that's it's, it rubs off because i'm really keen now to get out 
and have a go at this citizen science. And you I might hope find a new species. I could, I could. <laughs> um, and yeah, I really hope you guys get something out of this. So make sure you check out the videos tomorrow and you can start thinking about a citizen science project yourselves to get involved in. Um, oh, one last question here. Do you reckon we can... Is the habitat of Carpi Marine Reserve typical of most of the rest of New Zealand? Yep. Have we got time for that one? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, so the Carpi Marine Reserve is a pretty good representation of the habitat that we have around Carpeti Island, but we're in a really unique place here where we have warm and cold currents meeting. We've got um, quite, quite an unusual arrangement as far as the types of habitat that we have around Carpeti. So it's not representative of what's typical of all around New Zealand, but it's representative of what's, what you'll typically find around Carpeti. Um, and we have now around about 18 different habitat types that have been described around Carpeti. So the more you look, the more you find out, and the more complex the picture becomes. That's one of the really exciting things. There's always something new to learn when you get out there and go for an exploring the local marine reserve. Yeah. Just be safe. So thanks, thanks again, Ben. Um, the ambassadors, we're very happy that you joined us this week and are learning lots. So thank you to you okay our, today. our listening schools here. The o, that's, that's the universal symbol for I'm okay in the water. Not that. That means I want to go up. <laughs> um, and yeah, if you want to listen to a recording of the web conference, that'll be available later. Make sure you have a read of my diary slash blog. Have a look at the videos and join us again tomorrow for our final web conference at 9.15. In the meantime, you can all unmute and say a big goodbye. Bye, there. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us. Have a great rest of your day.